listener, welcome back to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream? <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to be talking well, mainly about Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers' first film from 84. Yeah. Won the Grand Jury Prize in 85 at Sundance. And was sort of set the stage for their for their later works. And we're going to build on the con- the good conversation, I thought, that we had last night. At Absolutely. The, the Fort Worth Film, Film Club, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a good turnout. It was a good conversation. I, I really, I really, really enjoyed uh, the conversation after the film. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if so you if, haven't come out, if you're listening to this and you haven't come out and you're in the Fort Worth area, uh, please come out. Uh, we'll be screening again. We'll be screening Terry Gilliam's Brazil on December 21st at the Stage West Theater. I'm excited about seeing that one as well. I've not ever seen that on the big screen. I've never seen it. Yeah. Well... I don't know if I, mean, I take that back. I might have seen it on the big screen, but I don't think I've ever seen it with a with a crowd that's going to be as kind of intimate as ours is. So, yeah. do you think they'll be as excited as they were when they saw the Brothers Grimm? <laughs> I mean, possibly. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I, I I do want to say that if you were there at the Fort Worth Film Club screening and you're listening, thank you for coming out and for listening. Absolutely. And if you stayed after the screening, um, even more thanks. Yeah, that's yeah. why we're there. And that one person that said that one thing. Yeah, it was way awesome. to go. That way was to go. That was so on the nose. I was like, that was so insightful that you said it that unlocked thing. so much. Right, right. It, it put a whole different twist on it that we had not thought of about yeah, before, yeah. and uh, we yeah. won't talk about it tonight. But it's, uh, but still, <laughs> no. but good job, <laughs> well done, and, and thank you. So before we get into that, I want to talk about. Or we want to talk about some new, some new releases that we've seen and that we have feelings on. <laughs> so let's talk about the wonder. Let's talk about Tar and. I think we can save After Sun for the end because it's just fucking brilliant. Sure, sure, um, absolutely. So, d- After Sun, after Blood Simple, or after oh, the other two? After Sun, after the other two. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just intercut it. This is going to be like a memento type uh, recording where. We're going to start at the end and go backwards, right. except we'll also play it in reverse. So, it'll be a Lynchian kind of ex- experiment. Let's start with The Wonder. Yeah, the, okay. the Florence sure. Pugh vehicle because I think new Pew. We got new Pew. We, we got you. new Pew. I, we are big Pew fans <laughs> on this pod. If there's anything that you learn about the stars of Why Does the Wilhelm Scream is that we're <laughs> we're we're Pewist. We we're, we, we're, 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 we're Pew fanatics. We're, yes. I don't know how to. We'll come up with a term that will Pew maniacs. Yeah, there we go. We'll okay. we'll, we'll workshop it. <laughs> well, yeah, we, offline. <laughs> we'll we'll figure out something. And, and, and as Jason has mentioned before on this podcast, that she's unconventionally good. She, <laughs> yes, she does not possess the same conventional beauty attributes as someone like Olivia Wilde, with who's tall and has striking cheekbones. I think is what we what yeah. We she's kind of mantis-like in a way. Not like Olivia Wilde. Yes, is mantis-like, yeah, and so more... so also like deadly in that. <laughs> right. After you consummate the relationship, she will kill you. She will definitely. Not yeah, that I we asked. know this for sure about Olivia Wilde. Uh, Jason Sudeikis is still, still alive. alive, right? But I don't know about her first husband, <laughs> who was some sort of like billionaire, right? Yeah, like royalty or something. So okay, okay. So so tell us about the wonder. Oh Jesus, do I have to do this? Okay, <laughs> just uh, just just okay. a brief. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a Florence Pugh plays this. Where she's wanna, a nurse. We, uh, yeah, she's a nurse. But I was trying to figure out the timeline of this. It's oh, like Old oh, House in the Prairie esque early. So this Americana is kinda. it's really interesting because it's it's like 1862, okay. and it's in Ireland, which seems like uh, yeah, and it's after the famine. It's after. But it's but it's after. Okay, so I seen it. It was two weeks ago. I, 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 I know. I, I, I've I know. completely forgotten this. So this is, it's like 1862 Ireland. It's it's sometime after the, the all our listeners the, are like the famine. Why the fuck is he even talking about this? He doesn't even. He does not care. <laughs> because it's going to help 
help set us up for our tar discussion. We always talk about pews. <laughs> and yes, we will always talk about pew. We should just do like an episode, a series on Florence Pugh. We should. Right, we're gonna we're gonna put that in the in the works. <laughs> and half the episode is why is she with Zach Braff? <laughs> okay. Yes. 1860s post Ireland famine. Um, there is a a girl who is in this remote village, uh, very. The uh, banshees of the Sharon. She's in this remote village, and she supposedly hasn't eaten for weeks on end, days on end. And a a while. Is, yeah, and they everyone believes it's some sort of divine intervention or some sort of gift from everyone. I say everyone, everyone in the town, but there are skeptics and so they bring in this woman of science, this nurse, to oversee. This girl who is supposedly not eating. They also bring in a nun from a Catholic um, monastery. What, you know, what nunnery, whatever, whatever those are. <laughs> Get thee to a nunnery. There's our Shakespeare <laughs> reference for today. Right. To also oversee the girl and to oversee Florence Pugh to make sure there's no, you know, nefarious, satanic things going on, what have you. And then throughout the time, it's basically Pugh not believing that the girl is not really eating and kind of conversing with this girl, uh, um, you know, bonding with her and kind of trying to help her figure out her story. And I mean, and that's really about it. Ultimately, um, Florence Pugh comes to the realization that the mother actually is feeding the daughter and they're calling it manna from heaven. So it's not really food, it's manna from heaven. But so Florence Pugh cuts off the the access from the mother to the daughter and the daughter starts to, you know, to fall into illness and sickness and she starts to and waste away. And she takes this to these this board of elders, these men that are wanting to know if this is truly divine intervention or if it is some sort of hokum. And she's saying, look, she's feeding her. This is not this. And they, of course, reject that. The, the, the nun has not seen the mother feed the daughter. So she kind of denies Florence Pugh's claims. And so ultimately, Pugh is left with a decision of what she can, what she will do in order to save this girl. Are we spoiling the movie? I mean, it's only been out Oh, for, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, it's, on it's been on Netflix. I mean, yeah, if you need to go push pause, <laughs> go waste two hours. Wait, we hit, we have announced back. on this show. I mean, look, it, to anyone who has listened, we have announced that this is, we will spoil everything. And if you don't like that, oh, I shouldn't like alienate people. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm that's sorry. True. <laughs> that's true. If I'm you sorry. don't like it, please still listen. <laughs> yes, I don't know what the, how that works. If you don't like our podcast, please spend two hours every couple of weeks listening to it. Absolutely. And and give us feedback on why does Wilhelm scream dot com and um, and mostly Brock Kingsley at um, sometimes Brock is sad dot com. That's his email address. And he'll reply back to you in, in really long diatribes about why movies are good or bad or what have you. And, and just imagine reading the email in an Eeyore voice because I'm sad. <laughs> I think it more of a snuffleupagus kind of like a Hebrew. <laughs> Okay, sure. Uh, I'm not. I'm not quite that furry. Snuffle, I guess. We'll get to the furry men but, later on in the conversation when we yeah. talk about Blood Simple. Yeah. Oh, so, he is so hairy. Too, he, right? Yeah, Hedaya is I mean, is a hairy, hairy man. Yeah. So, in addition, in addition to the the nun and Florence Pugh's nurse, uh, Florence Pugh befriends a journalist who's come to cover this instance of this had this happening as well, and she kind of tell she kind of befriends him and, and, and he leaks the story and and it basically exposes it as a hoax and pisses that pisses off the townsfolk as well. 
she and him become romantically involved. It's turns out that Pew also had some sort of, she had a child and it died early on in its life, very, very early on. And so she was no longer married at this point. And ultimately Pew decides to fake the child's death and she then moves out of the, she takes the child out of the village with the journalist and they're living together as a, and they immigrate out of Ireland and they're living, to Australia. They're, yeah, yeah. And, and they're living as together family. as a family from there just to, to save their life. That's the story of the, of the, that's the story of the movie. The movie is bookended by this our town kind of, or like a, it's, it's a, where you were brought in to say it, where it very distinctly says, this is a movie. Here's a movie set, which they didn't fucking use in this filming of that movie <laughs> no, at all, no. which, and then, and then at the end, as they go into Australia, then you're brought back into, uh, you're back, brought back to a movie set. So there's, it's very bookended. And at the beginning of the movie, you're taught to, well, you're taught, that's the wrong word, that the movie asks you to listen to these actors, to believe their stories, which is, we can get into this. I'm, I'm not a, I, I don't want to come off as saying I don't believe women and this is what this whole fucking movie is all about, mm. right? Is about, you know, a woman who's not believed by a group of men when she's telling them with this, the facts that are in their face. This is such a poor, poor way to do this. It is so, so bad. I mean, it, and it just, like, if it, if it had to just, if they had to cut the bookends off, the movie would have been fine, it, fine, in, not not memorable at all, but fine, but but fine. It would have been a solid six. You would, I would have, have gone, been like, oh, Florence Pugh is really good in that, right? Yeah, she's great. So I, I mean, I think the acting is fine. I think the set. I, I mean, um, the, the the set pieces are fine. The the movie would have had a poor imitation of like The Witch or. I think yeah. would have been really interesting. Have you seen Dogville or Mandalay, the Lars von Trier? Uh, Nicole Kidman, Price Dallas Howard, Howard films, where they, there's no set whatsoever. There's like, oh no, no, no. Oh, they're okay. Brilliant. The, they're brilliant. Uh, I, I, he's, I, he's a blind spot. Yeah, I get it. So. I, those, I would definitely recommend checking out Dogville. Mandalay is more of a take on um, slavery in the U.S., but both of them are really good, and they're just so striking because <clears throat> it is you're watching like an open room, and it is, and they're all doing this act again. It's our gotcha. time. There's no, there's no gotcha. set pieces at all. Right. So so good. I think it would have been very interesting had they had incorporated a little bit more. Like if you had have like gone to the edges of these scenes and then still seen the movie set. If they'd have like if they pulled back they would and have showed leaned you into it. Right, yeah. Okay. This idea that this is an artifice and it's and we're that would have been fucking brilliant. Yeah. And it really would have added something to it where, oh, I see a cameraman off behind these people, or I see a boom mic, or I see lights and I see where the where the horizon ends. Because I, but I, I don't know what the point of the bookend was well, well, outside of just being pointing in our faces and saying Women are telling the truth. I don't even, so the women telling the truth thing is interesting, but I think they were trying to lean into the idea that stories matter. And look, Nicole Kidman in AMC theaters and the Oscars, every year they tell us that stories matter. I get it. Right? I, 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 I don't know what the point of sort of like showing, showing the work on this, on this movie was because it's, it ends up being a film of nothing but binary oppositions. Right. right. It's, it's science versus religion. It's truth versus fiction. It's man, man versus woman. woman. It's Irish. It's English. Okay, like, g g but but then they didn't do anything with that either, right? 
And the story is so conventional. Yes. It's a story yes. that we've been, this is not a new thing. This is a story that's been told a hundred different times in at least 50 different movies. I mean, it's not like it's. No. And, and what is it? And, and I, I think that there could be, look, the female body becomes a spec, the starving female body becomes a spectacle in this film. And I think that in a way that's problematic, but it could, it could have done something interesting with that. It could have done in, something interesting about body dysmorphia. What is our relationship with food, right? How do, we and again, these are not new ideas. Not right. not in film, not in art, not in advertising. Right? But what about this idea of sur- survivor's guilt? This idea of what conventional religious thinking sort of teaches us to do or or pushes us to do. But it does none of that. It just does none of that. And y- you have this kind of cast of really good character actors who basically just exist in a tableau vivant. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, that's it. And these scenes look pretty because Sebastian Lilio is a good director. I mean, he is a v- visually striking director. Right. This bl- it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. What I think it would have been better also had they had just shown the bookends and not had the ridiculous stories matter verbiage around it as well. Sure. That would have given you thought of like, oh, that would at least allow the audience to interpret, you know, interpret what those scenes me- meant. Right. And, and instead you're like, here's what they are <laughs> and here's what you're supposed to think. And here's the beginning of the movie and enjoy. Yeah. And then at the end, oh yeah. Remember that thing that we annoyed you with at the beginning of this movie? And you're here like, what the again. fuck was that all about? Oh yeah. Here it is again. Yeah. I, I think this movie is so simplistic that most viewers are just going to go, okay. Oh yeah. Women. I should believe women and women's stories and stories matter. And I'll forget this movie 48 hours after I've watched it. But I think it's, it's, it's complicated too. That like, but which woman are we supposed to believe? True. Right, because the, the, the mother and the, and the little girl who's starving herself are telling one story when Florence Pugh is telling another story and the nun is telling another story and the men are choosing what to believe. And again, like, yeah, I think this could be something interesting, but I think a film like going back to the woman King does a better job of saying, listen to women right. in, in, in a much more direct way. I just, it's also very weird that the, that the journalist is kind of seen as Pew's savior in this case. It's a very kind of white man, you know, yeah. <laughs> savior complex yeah. here. Yeah. Even if it's a matter of like, oh, he's one of the good ones who believes women. And, but again, also, he's also the guy trying to sleep with Florence Pugh, <laughs> which, yes, yes. You know, I, no argument there. <laughs> I get it. And, We're all and, Zach Braff in some way. And I think, and I think Tom Burke is, I, th- I like Tom Burke a lot. I don't think he has a lot to do in this film. No. I think the only one who's really good is Florence Pugh. And in a weird way, she's not doing a whole lot of work, but she's just really good at all of it. And here's the thing too, we're never going to bad mouth a Florence Pugh performance. So you might as well, you can take all of what we say about her performances with a grain of salt. Yeah, She's always going to be amazing. (laughs) It's just how it goes. So I, I, back to this idea of like the book and thing. And one reason I wanted to, to bring up that, that like uh, pointing out the artifice is that I haven't seen that work ever except for Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2, mm-hmm. where at the end of the film, we pull back and see that the whole thing, the entire thing, has been the making of this movie that we've just watched. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and that's a moment where you're like, of course, of course, that what it, that's what it was. But it worked at that point because it doesn't show up at any other time. Souvenir so, Part 2 and Anguish, those two films, you really... <laughs> oh, yes. Yo, you're right. You're right. A- yes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I forgot about Anguish. It works there, too. I do think it's interesting that Florence Pugh is always eating in this yeah. film. And, and I mean that in a, in a, in a serious, right, serious sure, way sure. Be, because she stands then in contrast to the girl who's, who's starving. And I just, I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, uh, again, there wasn't much 
there's done with that, but right. There's a there's a ton of angles that could have been taken with this movie, yeah. there, and there could and avenues that they could have gone down that they do nothing with whatsoever. And, and it's like, like I said, I think it's it's one of those movies. It's very easy on its surface just to go. Okay, yeah. And and because you have this kind of period set piece and people are talking in accents, you you have a tendency to go, oh, that was a pretty good movie. If you peel back any of the layers of the onion here, it it's, just falls apart. Yeah, there's, 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 there's nothing just, there. It's just skin. And again, I would right? imagine anybody who's rated this highly, you know, would then, if I asked them to talk about it a month from now, they would have completely forgotten, forgotten it. it. I think you said, what did you say? It was good ideas executed poorly or something like that. And And I think that, at least in my mind, leads us into tar. All right, yeah. No, um, I'm going to go ahead and give the synopsis for this one because I have. Yes, yeah, please. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Kate Blanchett. I mean, you know, what can you say about our, our one of our generation's finest oh. actresses? She plays Lydia Tar, who is a world-renowned composer. Now, com- um, uh, what is the word for the conductor? Conductor. She, she's also a composer. She's but, a composer. But she's she known as a. But she's, and, but, and she was like an ethnographic field worker, a music co- ethnographic musicologist who had done field research. Right. She had gone off into, I forget exactly where she'd gone off to do, but she did spend five years of work. So we see her at kind of the apex of her career. She is a world famous conductor as if that's the thing that actually exists. And, and she's going on this tour. She's about to uh, conduct her, you know, the the symphony of her lifetime in 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 Berlin. She's got a book coming out, Tar on Tar, which is a guaranteed bestseller a thousand times over. And we see her in her process, and this is very much kind of like a, a you know, she is egotistical, she is maniacal in in the way that she treats people. Uh, she is very self centered, but it's all. Undone under the auspices of genius, right? That she is worthy of all of this deflection because she is better than all of us. Which I kind of want to go back to that point yeah. again. But she's and, an egot winner. Oh yeah, well. that's right. Which is I find funny because is doesn't that term only come from uh, the Tina Fey that's show? What I thought, right? Tracy, you know, Tra- <laughs> Tracy Morgan. He wants to be an ego. Yeah, he does. Well, he sees the necklace at at like a jewelry store. He's like, what's that? And so he he has this quest to go to become an ego. I find that that's a a thing because that's all that's that's my reference for it as well. Every time I hear that, I go I go back to um, (laughs) that show. And and, and so cracks, 30 Rock. 30, 30 rock. rock, thank you. Right. So cracks start appearing in her her psyche, essentially. We, and we start to see more and more of her of the ugly side of her character. Uh, she confronts a young girl who's been bullying her daughter. She uh, starts to hear things at night, you know, and, and she starts to have really bad nightmares. And it, about halfway through this two hour and 40 minute movie, you find out that, that one of her previous students, so you see her actually teaching a class at Juilliard and she's treating this pansexual um, person yeah. who is also wanting to be a conductor. She's treating his concerns about, um, you know, white cisgendered composers and, you know, the, their bad deeds where he can't really get into the work because he can't get past their, you know, the moral stance or, or, you know, and she kind of belittles that. Like I said, she confronts her, a bully at her, you know, 
at her daughter's school, comes to find out that one of the students that she had been teaching at this accordion academy has killed herself. She's basically Lydia Tars basically blacklisted her from all you know from from all symphonies basically everywhere. She can't find a seat on any symphony, and. Ultimately, she can't meet with Lydia's decided not to meet with her anymore, and she ends up killing herself. And then from there, a bunch of other things start to come out um, where she's probably sexually groomed young women in, in, in other symphonies and essentially start videos start coming out. The word that gets out about the girl who kills herself and her career starts to nosedive, as, as does she. At a certain point... Um, she is living in this apartment in Berlin. There's a woman that lives across the street that's an older woman that lives with her even older mother. And she's constantly bothering her in the middle of the night or at least when she's trying to practice music. Um, she decides to uh, groom another uh, young woman on her on our symphony, the Berlin Symphony. She's going to get her a spot. And ultimately, that woman just uses her to get into the symphony and to get first chair or to get the solo act and then kind of, um, you know, ignores her. And ultimately, once all these videos start to come out and, and everyone starts to turn against her, she's lost her family. She's lost her seat in the Berlin Symphony. She's lost her financial backer who, at the culmination of the uh, big event that she was supposed to c um, conduct... Uh, she rushes the stage and, and beats Mark Strong about the head and face in a very kind of compelling <laughs> or not compelling in a very like wild scene. And then and then ultimately we see her um, post this event. She goes overseas. She goes to Asia. I'm guessing is it Vietnam that she's uh, some Asian country that she's going to. <clears throat> and she's reduced to conducting a concert like a, like a for, live score uh, yeah a live score for monster hunter a video game music and and then we cut to black and that's basically it you but you you pull back across the crowd and it's what's supposed to be a humiliating moment for lydia and where you know you she's in a room full of cosplayers not not serious music people but they're people that are just there to listen to a score of a video game that that uh you know is you know that that now that she's been reduced to and that's that's essentially the the film i mean there's other bits and pieces in there that we've obviously in a two hour and 40 minute we don't have that much time on this podcast so we can't go over everything no. but i i i do want to hit i'm sorry yeah, i, no, I, I want to talk about the ending and i, and I want to talk about the moment with um the conducting student whose name is max who who identifies as a bipoc pangender person yeah i may have said it wrong <clears throat> no, no 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 i was just Reiterating, no, I don't, but I don't want to be disrespectful no, to no, Mac, to a, well, a fictional right. character, either, but right. And um, he's very nervous in that scene. He's his leg is jittering. I mean, he's obviously yeah. taken aback and in, 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 in awe of this person who is at the top of the field that he wants to be in, but also trying to find his own agency and his own voice to speak up for something that's obviously means something to him. And that Lydia, essentially, I'm not saying that she doesn't necessarily have points to make to back Cause, to because she does because she does and I, and I think that that this is where I get so confused with this movie so I am I'm so confused on what this movie is actually trying like am I supposed to take this as parody and satire or am I supposed to take this as a serious comment from fields and and even Blanchett about cancel culture and uh, are they lampooning in a way identity politics are they again are they sort of poo-pooing cancel culture. I can't tell. I really can't tell. And it drives me insane because the movie opens. And I think this is really interesting. The movie opens with the credits, 
Right. So the credits that would typically be at the end of the film are and they first. Run in, they run and they run in reverse. reverse. Sorry. So no, sorry. I couldn't say it right. So, no. so I, they run in reverse right, right. now. So just, as, I, as you're trying to say it, I'm just going to go mumble over it. <laughs> they run in that's reverse. That's how good this podcast is, guys. Look, look, we try. <laughs> and frankly, that's all anybody can ever that ask That should be for. the subtitle of our podcast. Why does yeah. the Wilma Helm scream? We hey. try. We try. We try. So the credits run in reverse, starting with like the lowest kind of person and going and finishing with the director as a way I think of saying, look at all the people you never thought of that it takes to make this thing, to make this thing that you just paid for to sit in and watch. It takes a lot, a lot of labor. And this is, and this I think is part of what the movie is doing is saying, look at all these people that hold up this person of genius, this person that we hold up as genius. Look at all these enablers. And Adam Gopnik is a clown. The New Yorker is a grandized mediocrity, uh, and I used I like to the read cartoons. The New Yorker for for, for, for years. But I I, I, I think Adam Gopnik is self important. I mean, and look, who the fuck am I to talk about Adam Gopnik? But regardless, right? I have opinions, and I have a microphone, so fuck it. But <laughs> have you ever seen the good? I don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Have you ever seen the Good Place? It, it's it, it, one of the sections in the Good Place where where it, it, one of the sections of hell is the, this guy's in a room and <laughs> Adam and, Gopnik. And, no, and. And issues of the New Yorker just keep piling up in the corner, and Ted Danson's going. Ted Danson's response is, "Come on, you know I'm never going to read those." (laughs) Yes. But so it's so true. It's so true. So it's like, is you know, is this film sort of shining a light on, on, on these kinds of celebrities or the people that enable them or both? So what was the New Yorker piece? I'm sorry, I, I may have. Oh, oh no, I the it, um, so. the after the credits, right? We okay. are well after the credits and after the the weird like video, social media video of her on the plane, right? Which never we, really is. It never it comes back, but it's but never it doesn't really make like, sense. Yeah, it doesn't. Make I don't understand. Sense. Yeah, but then we cut to Lydia Tarr at the New Yorker Festival, and right. so that's and Adam okay, Gopnik is there hosting, and so and this now I can use this Nathan Lee quote. The critic Nathan Lee said that. Tar is memoria for people who think the New Yorker is super important. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> and like I just it. I like and that. I think that that because I, I did I did got memoria vibes when I was well, with the sound like you just said the sound and the sort of nightmares right. and the, yeah I I really liked not to not to divert but I really liked in the bedroom I really really liked little children um, I thought that was just a really good adaptation of a Tom Parada book. But um, like, like you said, I couldn't, it, I, I, this film almost demands multiple viewings and I'm not sure I can go back and watch it again. No. One, the, the scene with the mother who's dying was yeah. so disturbing and like so kind of out of left field. What was that trying to tell us? So there's a scene, like I said, she's living in this apartment in Berlin and she's got this like really kind of almost what you would consider mentally challenged or mentally disturbed neighbor who's looking after her mother. And like, she keeps coming by and saying my mom's paper was stolen. And like, she keeps banging on the door. Well, one time she comes over in a panic in the middle of the night and her mom has fallen out of her chair. They go over to her apartment and her mom is like naked wrapped in a bandage who looks like she's got like bed sores. She had or, fallen off of the toilet. Like the, yeah, the, the, yeah. And so, or, or it's, you know, it's, you know, waste that's on her and just to that scene so once Kate Blanchett once Lydia Tarr gets back into her apartment you know she strips down naked and then she starts to wash herself off I just don't know like that was so like 
I don't know what that scene was. Again, like out of this movie, you're right. I don't know what this movie is trying to tell us. Is it okay. is it trying to shine a light on that we will allow people of power to get away with these atrocities because we're in yeah. because one you know up, and up to a point, but then up to a point like that's it, that's enough, right? But I'm not really sure. And this is not to I'm not lessening the accused atrocities. I'm not really sure what the atrocities are in this film. Right, because the first thing that she does, I mean, again, th- that she's a hard-ass teacher or and that she has opinions on the morality of men who lived right. eons ago. Right. Because and, that's an interesting conversation, or could be an interesting conversation. Right, right, absolutely, but they do nothing with that. No. And and so, other than then they take her words in a recorded video and manipulate it. So you're seen as, okay, well, she clearly didn't say any of the things and didn't behave in the ways. She was abusive and and certainly not, you know, she wasn't providing any sort of guidance and, and she was dismissive. But she's of, a bad teacher. Right, yeah. sure. But that, but is that her worst crime? Does that require her to be, to the extent of, again, the suicide, yes, she blackballed her, but there was, I mean, she also did say that the woman was disturbed. Right. And if, if it's a case of emotional abuse and like bullying to an extreme, Oh, okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that, and I'm not saying like people need to be tougher. But we just, we don't get any of that in the in the film. I mean, we see her, we see her how she acts with her assistant, the, uh, who I think Naomi Merlant. I think she's really good. We see her not give her the job she wants, and then that sort of leads to the downfall. This is the but Devil again, Wear product. Like, right, this okay, is, this yes, is exactly this movie. Yes. This is not a new. This is not new ideas, and that's. Again, the other right. part of it, because the the new stuff would have been the conversation with Max, right? The BIPOC pan, pan gender student and where he's like, I can't take Box seriously because he's a misogynist. And it's like, OK, I don't know enough about Box misogyny to go. Well, was he just an asshole and a bad husband or was he something worse? And but but again, like, I don't know. And, right. and I'm not one. Look, I I'm not this like separate the art from the artist, because if you're a if you're a bad person, I'm going to look at your art as kind of bad anyway. So I'm not defending that. But I think that conversation could have been so much more exploratory. Well, and, she and, had richer. A, and she had a really good point, too. I mean, right. where, where the, the people that he did like, you know, also were just as bad, if not as, you know, or, you know, bad, if not just as bad as Bach was. Yeah. So that that in, in, in encapsulated would have been a very interesting place to take all of this. But at this point, you know, we're left with really what did she do she was shitty to a girl that was bullying her daughter and that seems to be like we can't i mean none of the things that she had done where she i mean aside from being a narcissist that seems to be her biggest crime and also to be somewhat abusive so the message here power corrupts and money corrupts again that's really okay and and then are we are we supposed to the last scene is supposed to be a scene of ridicule we're supposed to look down so that's and that's why it's so difficult to figure out where this film is coming from because again none of her transgressions to your point is this a parody because none of her transgressions really seem to warrant and if they do, they don't show us. They don't give us enough information to make right. us go, Hold, yeah, okay, I see how that's like. Aside from the breakdown, when she's lost everything, she's lost her family. Oh, that's just batshit stupid. And, like and when she, she loses, right. <laughs> Sorry. Right, no, because it wouldn't. You see her when the when you know the the mother dies in the apartment, um, and they try to sell it, and, and the people come over, and the people the, the relatives come over, and they basically ask her to stop playing music. That was kind of funny. It was funny. It was, and she starts playing this, this song on the accordion about apartment for sale. Yeah. You're burning <laughs> in hell. Is, you put is, your 
daughter in jail. Yeah, like, I don't know about that, but like, yeah, but but the sort of like, no, I'm not going to be quiet. Right. That that was kind of funny. And, and so again, like you, uh, that's supposed to embody, or at least you know, to show you her 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 continual mental uh, decline. By the time we get to her in the Asian country where she's doing this. She seems to have all of her faculties. Yes, she's reduced, yeah. but she's got all of her faculties around here again. But it also like seems to be saying, okay, this is how this is how you like descend in the in in this version of the art world. You start at the Berlin Philharmonic, right? You're at the top. So, well, then you go back to New York to meet with your like agents and and marketing people. That's a step down. Then you go back to whatever hometown it was that you grew up in, in, in Omaha right. or Cleveland. That's a step down. And then the last step, the last descent into your personal hell is some foreign country. And yeah. The critic Amy Talbin, I don't know, she was on a, um, <clears throat> sorry, she was on a podcast and she just went off on this and she called it the most racist bullshit she's ever seen. <laughs> and it was, she hated it's, it's it. A point. it was, but I mean, it is, it isn't. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's not racist. Well, I mean, look, m- movies are interpretation machines and I'll say this again, I'm sure. But that is a way to look at it because you're saying she's been so reduced that she has to go to a foreign country with a bunch of others well, to do this that, work. But the others then are accepting of all of this bad, like they wouldn't be, like they're so stupid stupid and they're so disconnected that right. they wouldn't have been able to pick up on this right. as well. Those like, aren't Jason's actual thoughts. He's put, those are the thoughts of the movie that when, Jason when, is sort of like when Brock re-edits this like in the movie and <laughs> puts my words together. That's what my thoughts will be. Like <laughs> but it will appear to be anyway. Yeah. So when I'm canceled, you'll know that uh, you'll get able to come back to this episode and say, wait a minute. But yeah, let's put all this in context. It just why did you have to do that? And also to that end, like <laughs> you don't need now granted she's done popular music because she's an egot you don't need Lydia Tarr to conduct and it doesn't add any sort of prestige to conduct Monster Hunter you know live shows you don't you can do that with anyone (laughs) so why would none of that makes sense now all of it was to really set up this scene where she's having tension she goes to her hotel concierge which is you know and obviously all of this is shown as like this is not shown as this is shown as like Vietnam era, you know, 1970s, what we would think of, you know, basically really, really third world accommodations. She's not in some it's really reductive. It, it, it's, it's really, really bizarre. And stereotypical. <laughs> yeah, because like what city is she in where she's staying in a hotel that's, I mean, like it doesn't, none of it makes any sense no. whatsoever. No. And, and, and so she goes to a massage parlor, which is actually in a, in a nice building. And the massage parlor is one where she goes and gets to pick her masseuse. And of course, when she goes, the mas- you know all of the mas- the masseuse is the masseuse I masseuses masseuses. The, all it's of like the, vinyl. Right? It's just the same. Right. <laughs> the plural all of, of the masseuses masseuse are <laughs> arranged like an orchestra would be arranged. And she picks out the woman in the same position of the woman that she was enamored with, that kind of rejected her av- advances. And then she. That's the only person that's looking at her and she runs outside and throws up in the street as this sort of like revelation that she is a bad person that that, that this month yeah, the monster that she truly is is because one you know Asian masseuse is looking at her in the eye and happens to be in the same position this is a realization of oh my god it's not the fact that one of her students killed herself after repeated emails <laughs> well that were she was sent. damaged anyway <laughs> right it was the realization that the woman that she was trying to groom and use for sex and obviously offer up you know, a, you know, a seat on the symphony. That was what, yeah, what was what really kind of. I also want to say the connection. I don't buy for one second that 
she can seduce these women. I don't buy for one second that she's charming enough. I think it's the to power. Seduce. I, I get it, but if you look, I mean, I get that, right? But if you look at the way Naomi Merlant looks at her, it's like she's scared of her all the time. And, and, and she hints at these like past kind of romantic sexual relationships. I'm like, but there's just, I mean, I look, I understand that power is sexy, right? I mean, I get, I get that sex is itself about power and everything else, right, is about sex. Fine. But there's just nothing, like, there. And, like, even, the only good part about this movie is Nina Haas. She's so, yeah. she is so good. And, and, and if you're a Christian Petzold fan, like, I am, you're just like, <laughs> ooh, Nina Haas. <laughs> but I just, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy I don't know. I don't buy her character for the most part. And again, that's why I'm like, is this kind of a parody? Is this a satire? Yeah. And one would lend itself to that as because her conducting is overblown and overdramatic and Mark Strong has hair. So there's all these kind of <laughs> things that would indicate that this you're not supposed to be taking this seriously. None of it fits right. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just... I, I don't, I mean, I think I could berate this film. All, I don't, I don't understand why everyone loves it. So I mean, I, I think it's been divisive, uh, come on. but, but it, it, it really, it, no, I think everyone likes it because you're supposed to like it because it has all the pedigree so we're, so of an art house film. <laughs> we're back. Yeah, of course but it it's is. not real. All it is is like classical music and right. that's like high art. And so that, that makes it an but art it, house but, film. But it's somewhat inscrutable, so you think that it's more intelligent than it actually is. It, it, it's it's overlong. It's got prestige actors in it. They all seemingly take it seriously. Yeah. I actually wrote down, this film thinks it's saying something so heavy, and it's not. It's it's a familiar story set in this quote-unquote exotic world of classical music. I, I, it's, it's, you remember when James Ivory pictures were popular and like, Every like, no, nah, you're older piece. than me. <laughs> That's true. I am older than you. <laughs> but for every like Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence, we would get you know some reductive take of Sense and Sensibility yeah. or some sort of Jane Austen horseshit. Yes. That's a, yes. that you know it's it's and people tend to gravitate towards things that are different. It just it it bears all the markings of a prestige art house film and. Yeah, I don't think it holds up. No. But I think it's inscrutable enough where people will think, well, I didn't get it, and so I'm not smart enough to figure it out, so I, so it's so it's got to be a good movie. Which is what I kept thinking. And I'm like, I should watch this again. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch this again. No, no. So I, the more and more I thought about it, actually the angrier I got about the film. It takes... Like it takes so long, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against long movies, but it takes so long. You, you're an hour and, and twenty minutes in before anything starts to unravel, and then you realize you've got another hour and twenty minutes to go, and like nothing, like you said, everything is so inconsequential, and not that everything has to be like in your face. Like I, I just complained about with the wonder, where right. it isn't, but the social commentary that Field had with little children. Now, granted, a lot of that could have come from the novel as well, but was so well done, and in contrast to this, it, it, it's just it's just clumsy. And again, it's almost like he kind of like had very s silly ideas of like, oh, I'm going to show all, I'm going to show the you know the gaffers before the director, and, and that'll, and the and the guy who worked on you know this this some of the sound design. But yeah, everything else kind of again the social media, phone recordings kind of pull you out. Like, like, like you said, this message is so muddled. Is it 
we live in a society that everyone's being recorded and everything can be manipulated. And, and so we need to be aware of what the, what the actual truth is and who we demonize. But again, she's shown as an, but you, but focusing on her, you clearly want to say that this is, that she was, are you, are you saying she was unjustly done or where are you? And again, now we keep going to say, we're saying the same thing right. over again, but is he trying? Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. You're, you're <clears throat> spot on in the fact that I don't know what he's trying to say. Is yeah. she unjustly humiliated by the end of this movie? Because I don't, but because I, because I think what he's trying to say is, is that she deserves what she gets. I think on the surface of this is that, because again, the credits would speak to that, right? Right. The little people matter. Right. The, you the, can't step on these people that prop you up. Right. Right. And the people that, that you stepped on to get to where you are still matter. So if you're still treating those people like shit, but her transgressions, I don't necessarily, I don't know. Would this work better if she was more of a, if she was more of a Miranda priest? I mean, like, but you know who she is. And, and this isn't my thought. Um, I forget where I heard this. So this isn't my original idea. She's the female Daniel Plainview mm-hmm. from This Will Be Blood. That's who she is. She has ego and genius and they clash. And this is great. This is interesting. On the surface, she's an interesting character. But again, am I that supposed dis- to- That like, disappoints me then. Because it, it, because the, the Daniel Plainview, I mean, obviously I, you know, we've spoken about this, this, that movie's brilliant, but like, but the Daniel Plainview piece of it, again, he was, you know, he was a victim of his own hubris. I mean, like, and, and, and he caused his own downfall in this case. It wasn't, and and he isolated himself on purpose because he th- he thought everyone else was. A, that would have been a brilliant yes. fucking movie. Yes. Where she would if she'd have just said fuck you and like and, and yeah. gone off and, and gone off to this like right. other country and done emotionally that. Emotionally vulnerable and like and like and really trying to be taken aback. Like she should have not given a shit about this girl that committed suicide. I, well, I don't think she, she. I think she just had like this nervous breakdown because she was losing her power and her place of prestige. But not right. at that point, she hadn't. I mean, at that point, she still. It, that that was the very beginning of like, yeah. oh, we're supposed to see this as crazy because, like, and and how horrible she is because look at all those emails that she oh, sent right, out. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like, no, Daniel Plainview, Plainview would have done that and stood up. I mean, like, and then she would have gone on, you know, some fucking talk show and like, like double double down double on down. all of it. And then, all, or also, she would have apologized, and then also doubled down. Yeah. She would have said, "Yeah, it's a terrible thing that happened, and I feel bad for her family, but you know, I can't be held responsible." Like, that's you know, if I find one beautiful conductor in the world, and it takes fifteen people to kill themselves, you're welcome. <laughs> Fuck you. You're welcome. That's, that would have been a much better movie. My God, it would have been a much yeah. better movie. Well, you guys should see. He is so worked up right now. <laughs> I know this is an audio format, but man, I'm okay. gesticulating wildly. <laughs> That, that's a perfect place to end, I think, our tar discussion. Look, I want to get to Blood Simple, but I, I just want to say that After Sun is brilliant. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, Charlotte Wells' uh, debut feature debut. film. Uh, it's it's brilliant. Paul Mescal and oh my god, I can't remember the the girl's name, but she she is fantastic. This would really it would really behoove you to to seek out Charlotte Wells's short film Tuesday, which this is kind of the precursor for. It's it's so good. It's on Vimeo. It is. Give me a rundown of what it's all about. Really in, interesting. Um, so <laughs> that's not an easy thing is, to say. I know, right? I know. So this is it, it's the Even story. Surface, it's fine, yeah, but. it's the story of a young father and his preteen daughter that go on a holiday to turn. Turkey to a kind of um, resort in Turkey. It's uh, set in the 90s, and it's their kind of last trip together. Paul Mescal's character, the father, is separated from his daughter's mother. They still keep in touch. They're still on good terms, but it's on this trip, and you can see that there is something under the surface 
going on with this guy. He's kind of sad or he has these moments of, of sadness. He is working really hard on meditation and Tai Chi and this kind of focus. And there are books kind of on the dresser addressing this stuff. Um, but it's it's it's. Yeah, it's a father-daughter And it's film. a coming-of-age story as It's well. a coming-of-age story, and it's told from her point of view. I think she's 11 yeah, in the film. And it's told really from her point of view. There's also this really great use of, of the video camera and how it almost works as a... Or no, it does work as like a double present tense. We see things being shot through the video camera and then back to that pres- same present moment. We see them separated in rooms we see them shot through mirrors there's always this kind of disconnect right there's always this kind of distance between these two characters it's 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 beautiful it's heartbreaking it is i think it's incredibly shot i think her storytelling her narrative technique is really interesting really compelling yeah um the girl's brilliant i mean as well i mean she's so good i i I don't remember her name either but uh which is doing her a disservice but yeah she's so you know i will say you know the only thing that that, i i don't think a lot of the they're so good that i don't don't, that the other like surrounding characters frankie corio um aren't quite as good you know like some of the other kid actors and are, are a little bit distracting but i think that's just a nature of a first film and budgetary reasons and things like that well she got she got money from New York and Scotland. Um, she's Scottish, I believe, by birth, but went to NYU, and so she was able to kind of do like I think both kind of um, both sources of funding. And nice. So, but other than that, like the it doesn't look like a first film. No, it's really no. polished. I, I, yeah, I don't is, think, and it's really slick in in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. Right. Um, and I and I like the inclusion of um, adult Sophie. That's that's the character's name, um, and how she remembers him how she sees her father in this dream, right? Of him dancing in the club, sort of like free. And that's, that's then like the last image we're left with in the, in the film too. I, yeah. I really liked that. It was great. It yeah. was, it was fantastic. Uh, I, I want to watch it again, thing. but it's going to destroy me. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's available for streaming. At, um, now at this okay. point. So, Is it? Yeah. 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 So I'll watch it and like cry at home. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. Should we move on to Blood Simple? Let's do it. Okay. What I know about is Texas. Down here, you're on your own. Having a good time? Hey, what's it? Your husband. I got a job for you. It's not strictly legal. You want me to kill him? Let's get out of here. <laughs> simple. Coen Brothers' first film, 1984. A bit on the Coens, and I'll let you sort of sum up the movie. Sure. But we had, it, so at this point, before this, they didn't, the brothers didn't have a whole lot of experience. Joel, Joel did an undergrad at NYU film school and then started it. UT, University of Texas. Correct, yeah. He followed a woman out there, like I think his wife at the time. As like we all do. Yeah. And then no and then he left and was and was working on on sort of like industry movies and and and, and commercials, music videos. He was doing a lot of post-production work on things like on the on Evil Dead. Yeah, well, and that's how genre films that's how he got films. Raimi's attention was right. that he showed this real kind of penchant for editing. And so then he became an assistant editor on Evil Dead. And so then after that, 
he and his brother Ethan wrote this. Did you know Ethan has a has a philosophy degree from Princeton? No. He did his thesis on uh, Wittgenstein's later work. Oh, um, nice. Wittgenstein being the kind of greatest philosopher ever, because we don't talk about Kant because of his his misgivings and yeah. his, his basic like racism, right? But the uh, <laughs> so so yeah, so this was like the first thing that they did together. Of course, after that, they did some other stuff with right, with Ramy. Right. Um, I think this and and we'll talk about this I think later too. But it sets up a whole lot of what we now come to associate with them. That kind of homage to certain genre films, dark humor situated situated around like these bleaker scenarios, plot twists on top of plot twists, um, on top of a fairly simple plot. Yeah, I mean, and it, it really kind of an efficiency of, 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 of their, uh, just of their methodology and their filmmaking in, in the sense that they, you know, they had $1.5 million to make this movie and, and, and really all of it is there, is, is evident. I mean, you can see where they didn't have 1.6. I mean, it's just a matter of yeah. they did what they needed to do. <clears throat> they knew what their money situation was and wrote the script to that rather than starting off with some grandiose design and then having to scale it back because they couldn't afford it they knew exactly what they wanted to do they knew to the point of who they wanted to get and were able to get them yeah. which you know in Emma Walsh which I you know always serendipitous that these things work out I think Hedaya is such a great character actor you probably could have gotten him without really much McDormand's a find right but I think Emma Walsh really if you don't have that character right and I'm not saying that there, no one else could have done it, but it, he, he, I think he understood this script in ways that I'm not sure other character, other other actors would have. And he brings something so sinister and so delicious to this role, and like just wears that kind of smarmy, like just sweaty ugliness of like 1980s Texas, really, right? This kind of like just garish. Uh, the yellow kind of like corduroy you know. suit that he wears—it's <laughs> right. so good. It's so good. <laughs> Barry Sonnenfeld was the cinematographer, pretty much fresh out of school. Yeah. The thing that he had done, do you know what he did right before this? No. He shot the video, Rock the Casbah for The Clash, <laughs> which was filmed in Austin. Really? Yeah, it was that. filmed in Austin. The Clash are playing in front of like a live oil rig. The video shows a Hasidic Jewish limo driver picking up a, a Muslim hitchhiker. Wow. And they go to a rock concert. I mean, it's, I don't know if, you, if you've seen it. You should watch it's, this video. I'm it's, sure I have It's bizarre. Point, I it's brilliant. It I, mean, the, I mean, The Clash are great because The Clash wrote this song. Here's your Clash background, listeners. <laughs> the Clash wrote this song in response to the Ayatollah in, in Iran um, after the revolution sort of banning all music. And so the song is about the citizenry and even the Air Force rejecting that, right, and playing playing this music. So And Sonnenfeld anyway. would go on to direct Men in Black and... and Get Shorty. Get Shorty, yes. And Adam's Family. Adam's Family, Adam's Family value Men in Black 3. And, and, and he did he did the first three Coen Brothers films. So he did this, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing, And that yeah. was... And then... Oh, that one guy who's like really famous took over. Talk about a first three. Well, we can keep talking about this, but like a first three movies coming out of the block. That's that's a murderer's row right there. It's so good. Like right? and and subsequent. I mean, like getting leaps and bounds better each time. Although you could make an argument for Miller's Crossing and Raising Arizona, which one's better? But in reality, I mean, like again, they're they're so good. So we go back. Yeah, I love Miller's Crossing. I think it's my yeah. That may be one of my favorite. Yeah, um, I mean, at least of the early stuff. 
so we are in this small Texas town, and it's kind of a nondescript. You get a voiceover from Emmett Walsh, basically saying, "All oh, every man on is you know every man in Texas is on his own, essentially," which kind of sets up the whole tone for this movie. We live in Texas, and it's true. Uh, Dan Hedaya <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah. Brock and I aren't even in the same room. This is a no, no. <laughs> We're all just isolated down here. So Dan Hedaya is a greasy bar owner it's this kind of out of the way it's advertised by a big bull um (laughs) sign (laughs) out front and it's it seems like it's not a traditional strip club i think people i think girls dance on the bar occasionally so it just seems like a real seedy place to be like a seedy go-go bar kind of yeah it's full of low lives it's full of neon it's and he's one of those guys that's he has money and but this is how he intends to spend it and you know this is the business that he has so like you you're given that the idea that he either has some sort of additional form of income and he's now just living out of this bar and kind of where this is where he's you know making his life the beginning of this film starts and he's meeting with Emmett Walsh about um, an affair that his young wife Frances McDormand is having with her uh, boyfriend who also is a bartender at at the bar where he's decidedly um, not a marriage counselor though <laughs> But this is true. And um, M.M. Walsh is basically confirm, confirming Hedaya's uh, suspicions that his wife is actually having an affair with him. And Hedaya realizes that he can't live with this. He can't, you know, and so he hires M.M. Walsh to kill his wife and her lover. M.M. Walsh decides to do it for $10,000 in one of the best lines of the movie where Dan Hedaya and M.M. Walsh meet up in M.M. Walsh's BW Bug. And Hedaya's like, I've got a job for you. And he's like, well, if it's legal and the money's right, I'll do it. Hedaya turns to him and is like, well, it ain't exactly legal. And M.M. Walsh takes a pause and he's like, well, if the money's right, it's so, <laughs> so delicious and so good. <laughs> but again, like this is what I don't mean to interrupt, but no. this is what the Coens. Be, I mean, this sets the groundwork for stuff that that shows up later in these films. This yeah. kind of very sort of dry, but funny delivery of these. <laughs> Look, they're funny lines, but they're also brilliant lines. Yeah, you could see this being a, a, a you know in a 1940s noir being a straight laced line. That someone would say to another, you know, to a to a, a gangster. Oh, and you know? it says so much about character. Yeah. Too. It says so much about Emmett Walsh's character, this this private detective that will, you know, he he'll tell you he has morals and standards, but when it comes down to it, he he doesn't. He'll right. pretty much do anything for the right amount of money. Uh, and so Emmett <clears throat> Walsh agrees to kill both of them for ten thousand dollars. He actually takes the ten thousand dollars and decides not to kill them, but he. But he, but he copies up these. He does some 1980s photoshopping and, in the dark room and provides uh, photographic evidence, quote unquote evidence, to Dan Hedaya that he's killed him. And then um, he, while he was taking the photos of Francis McDormand and John Getz, in you know they were sleeping, to, you know, in the sleeping in the same bed, he steals Francis McDormand's. A snub-nosed pearl-handled revolver, and shoots Dan Hedaya in the chest. Takes the money, and and leaves. And John Getz goes back. Um, John Getz is is Francis McDormand's lover, 
remind me, his name is his name Ray. Ray. Okay, so his yeah. name is Ray. So Ray goes back to the bar because uh, Marty owes him two weeks back. And Marty's Dan Hedaya's character. Marty owes him two weeks of back pay. He's going to quit. They basically come to an agreement that hey, I'm sleeping with your wife, and, and it's like whatever, dude. You're going to. I'm like, and so you Marty can't work here anymore. Right, you can't work here. You can't bartend at my bar and sleep with my wife. <laughs> it seems like a, it seems like a fair rule, right? Yeah, it's a trade off. Um, and so. Uh, but uh, Marty doesn't want to pay Ray. Ray goes back and finds the the snub nose revolver, and Dan Hedaya is shot and thinks, "Oh shit, the woman that I'm sleeping with, the person that I'm supposed to be in love with, has killed her husband." So, as any noble lover would do, he takes Dan Hedaya's body, puts him in his car, and decides to go out and bury him in a in a in a field, you know, in a, in a, I don't know if it's, that's, that's not a cornfield. Like, like a plowed. Yes. It's a plowed yeah. field with nothing that's on it at the moment. So while he's driving Dan Hedaya's supposedly dead body out to the field to bury him, Dan Hedaya wakes up and starts to crawl away from the car that's been stopped on the side of the road because now he's stopped and he's freaked out about the, 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 the alive body in his car. <laughs> Ray gets a shovel out of his trunk and is about to go and beat Hadea over the head. A semi-truck, but he's having a crisis of conscience during this whole time. A semi-truck comes by, puts him back in the car, and then drives him out to the middle of the field and then buries him alive. All this while, Frances McDormand then finds out that Ray has, because obviously she didn't know Marty was in trouble or even had a private detective, that Ray has a sense, she thinks that Ray has killed Marty and that he's going to do the same to her. And obviously Ray thinks that Fran, Francis McDormand has killed Marty. What's her character's name? Is it Abby? Uh, Abby, yes, thank you. And so they're both distrusting of one another. All the while, Emmett Walsh's character, Lauren, which you don't actually see, you don't ever hear his name, it's just written on his lighter. He's got is, a Zippo, a silver, <laughs> a silver Zippo. It's it, it, On the side of it, it says Elk Lodge Man of the Year, like 1978 or something. <laughs> I mean, it's detail. so perfect, right? His name is written on with like a, with like a lariat. It's so good. Lauren realizes that he left his Zippo lighter back at the bar, goes back to get it, also realizes that while he's looking through his photos that he's burning of to give him evidence that he was even involved with any of these people, he realizes that Marty has kept one of the photos and put it in his safe. So Lauren goes back to the bar to retrieve his lighter and also break into the safe and to get the fo- get the last photo so that he's no longer involved. While he's there, Abby goes back to the bar. He thinks that Abby's seen her or seen him. And so as Ray and Abby are plotting their escape, because now Abby thinks that that uh, Ray has killed Marty, and Marty's basically th- still thinks that Abby had killed Marty to begin with. Now he knows that he actually killed him because he was alive when he buried him. They're planning their escape. But he thinks he did it for her, right? He right. thinks that he buried him alive for her. And now Emmett Walsh thinks that they both know that he was involved and killed Marty. So now he has to go and kill them. He sets up shop on top of a building across from uh, Ray and Abby's loft that they've kind of moved into and he shoots Ray through the window. Abby smartly turns off the light. Finally. (laughs) And so uh, Lauren goes over to the building to kill Abby uh, Abby's able to take a knife and stab him. She's able to trick him, lure him into a bathroom, take a knife and stick it, stick his hand through a window that's somehow across the outside of a building between two windows. It's very complicated. I apologize. I'm not doing it justice while I'm describing it. <laughs> we get the idea that on the uh, 
Abby runs into the bathroom to hide, and she she opens the bathroom window and looks out, trying to find a way to escape. And she looks to the left and realizes that, at least this is kind of what we assume, that she can open the window to the next door unit and sort of get over and then get in there and hide. And right. so th- that's what Walsh Lauren is trying to do is open that window. And as he opens the window and puts his hand down on the sill, then she stabs through it with with Ray's knife. The, yeah. So Lauren is stuck. His he's in he's in the bathroom of one of one uh, <laughs> unit with his hand stuck in the bathroom of another unit. And he <laughs> takes his gun and starts to shoot holes in the wall. One, you think trying to kill Abby potentially in the crossfire, but also once all once the gun is spent, he starts punching his way through the wall so that he can grab the knife and pull his hand out. Uh, he does that, and ultimately Abby's able to use the last bullet in her revolver uh, to shoot through through a you know through back through the bathroom do- wall, and she clips Warren in the stomach. And he falls under the sink. And one of the greater lines of the movie, too, is she's like, I, she, I forget what exactly how she says something about Marty. So like, I think she she is sort of still under the assumption that Marty is somehow alive. Okay. So she has that vision or the dream of him being there. She doesn't, because she goes to the other bartender, Maurice. She says, I think Marty's dead. And he's like, Marty's not dead. I just talked to him. It's fine. And so she had, she has this assumption or she has this idea that it's Marty doing all this. And so as she shoots Walsh through the door, she says, I'm not afraid of you, Marty. Right. And then Walsh goes... Well, if I, if I see him where I end up, I'll tell him. And he's like laughing as he's dying. Another great intimate wall scene where he's just like starts to laugh out loud because he knows he's, he knows he's cooked. He's done for. And he's like, you know what? If I see him, I'll yeah, tell him. If I see him, I'll tell him. And that's it. And that's it. That's and the that's end it. of the movie. Yeah, it's it's it, what's what I love about the Coens is that even at this stage in their career, they're such students of of the of the genre. I mean, of, of these genres and of film and like because this does just speak to 1950s, 1960s noir films and like this, these all these double cross, double indemnity, all these types of movies that came before it and spoke the same language and they do it. Look, this movie is rough. It is raw. It's it probably there's scenes that are that that just shutter shot out of like where you know, there's there's it's got some not, weird not cuts. smooth transitions. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not the most polished film you'll, you'll ever see out of a first time filmmaker or filmmakers. But as far as its substance substance goes, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, it is a clear announcement of of their intention, and and I look. I said this last night at the Fort Worth Film Club discussion, but this is a very postmodern film, and I and I mean that in not a look how smart I am. I just call things postmodern, <laughs> but it it I think it quite purposefully purposefully references those film noir films, and the other part of that is. Again, the the use of the four tops, it's the same old song, Mm -hmm. which is played three times during the film. And it's them saying, it's just a rehash. It's just a reinterpretation, our representation of film noir. I mean, the the song, it's just the same old song, was actually a reworking of I Can't Help Myself, right? right? And and, and, and fairly acknowledged by these guys. I mean, so it's a kind of meta-commentary on both parts. But again, it's showing how smart they are in what they're doing. And it's using all of these elements. I mean, this is... 
I mean, this, I think this is brilliant to take a genre and go, okay, we're going to work within this structure. We don't have a ton of money, but here's what we can do. We can do shadows, right? We can do really kind of like severe camera angles. We can do this like very minimal plot and just have twists and turns. And we can do our own spin on a femme fatale. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a brilliant way to do that. And so I mean postmodern in a kind of complimentary way. And it does, and it, and it, does a lot of that without being, again, still understanding its limitations because Francis McDormand is not your typical femme fatale. And, but they also realize that she was probably the best actress for the job that they, I mean, and so she's so good in it. She's so believable. She has such a unwashed innocence about her that you understand that, that why Ray and Marty would be broken up over her mm-hmm. and, and also be still like suspicious of her in a way where you, they realize her, you know, we know we use agency a lot on, on here, but you know, her intelligence and her, even if she is kind of wide eyed and unworldly, she still has this, a presence about her where she's carrying herself with some sort of level. And of course, yeah. obviously I think where, where Ray is coming to it from is that she is a woman of prominence and wealth and where Marty is coming into it is, is she's a, you know, a, a, a person of youth and she's arm candy. Right. right. For him. Right. right. I mean, she is a trophy wife to him for, from a guy who no longer can, can even with, even with his money can, it can no longer procure, women right. to, to, to look, even look at him or pay right. attention to and, him. And there's a great scene in that where he tells this woman at, at the bar that he owns, he's trying to, he's trying to hustle her as she says, right? <laughs> he's like, tell Maurice, you, you know, you've got a headache. You're going to hang out with me. And she's like, no, get out of here. What are you doing? But he's so sleazy and creepy in that scene. He's great. I, the Francis McDormand femme fatale thing. I, I, I think this is actually brilliant by them. I, I think it's them saying, she doesn't look like your typical femme fatale. And I think we always think of, of Lana Turner, I mean, as an example of a sure. femme fatale, this like blonde bombshell who also has something kind of sinister in her eyes. And that makes her even, and I'm sorry for this, makes her, makes her even hotter. <laughs> that kind of look of like, oh, there's trouble. <laughs> like, and, right, and, and right, like we yeah. all love trouble. But I think this is what makes that or helps subvert that is that she does look so young and so sort of quote unquote unworldly, but there's still something magnetic about her. And, and, and there's something kind of untrustworthy in that innocence. Yeah. Lana Turner has an anger. She's pissed at her. She just sneers. Right. She's pissed at what, what life has given her Mm -hmm. Uh, to, to to the extent of, I mean, I think McDormand's Abby's character realizes that she's made choices and that she was happy at one point, but she also realizes what Marty has become. Yeah. And that that she's not happy anymore. Right. And that she's the same. Yeah. And so Ray is her, and who knows why, you know, you don't, you don't, we don't see any of this. Well, who knows why Ray was someone she chose, right? Well, or, he, he likes her. I mean, he says in the car, right? Yeah. I like you. I mean, so it, kind of dumb luck, right? But I think she probably knows too that she could ask anyone, right? right? Any kind of man that doesn't look like he's, he's just going to like beat her. I don't know. But so I think there's that, but th- I love the ambiguity in this kind of femme fatale figure. It's not vague. It's ambiguous. And, and that's, and that's a good thing in this film is that you're, cause we're never quite sure about her. I mean, sure. Right. Dan Hedaya, Marty tells Ray, it's going to be, you know, what's going to be funny is when she looks at you and says, I don't know what you're talking about, Ray. I didn't do anything funny. 
And she says those exact words. And of course, we're meant to remember that and go, maybe there is something going on. Right. right? Because immediately he distrusts her. She distrusts him. I mean, it's like new lover tension. <laughs> and it just builds into, into that. And you're just, yeah, you're never quite sure. Like, is she on the up and up or not? I, I think this film, the way that it's put together is... I, I, there's there's an interesting like dichotomy because I think there's some things that obviously I don't really think that work that are just like tricks, and I think that there's some that are just so amazingly confident for a first film. So the example of the Raimi shot of when they're in the yard, yard in the front yard out of Ray's house, and you know the camera just zooms up in them that fast zoom that Raimi is so well known for, and that Sona film does. They do that again. They do it again, and 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 but to comedic effect in raising Arizona. Yeah. And and then yeah. if Sonnenfeld would do it a ton of times right. in Men in Black and a bunch of I mean he he uses it a lot. Too. They also do that that like kind of low tracking shot on the bar where the the camera goes over <laughs> the guy who's like <laughs> that's brilliant. Which is so, so good. good. So yeah, the, the camera's going <laughs> along a bar. There's a passed out patron on the bar. The camera lifts up and goes <laughs> over the <laughs> over the patron's head and then goes right back down to the level where it was. Before. But that also feels like a Raimi kind of thing. To, I mean, it, it I does. Mean, yeah. It does. Yeah. It does seem kind of like three stooges as like but the scene where where Ray is burying Marty and it is a 13 minute scene with no dialogue whatsoever. And you just have the radio in the background. I don't know any of the other first time filmmaker aside from one who's just using stock footage and doesn't have enough move, movie to put anything together. I don't know any other first time filmmaker that's going to let 13 minutes go in their movie and without anyone saying anything. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sort of putting your stamp on something. I mean, that is, that's a confident move or it's a fuck it, let's see what happens, move. But either right. way, I mean, it takes a lot of nerve, I think, to do that. And a lot of trust in your in your own ability. The leap from this, though, to Raising Arizona, I think, I mean, this movie, Blood Simple made, ended up making $3 million. So it made all of its money back for its producers, and I'm sure they all were able to get money back. Um, you know, this, but it was pretty derided up until the point where it premiered at Toronto. It didn't premiere at Toronto, but it played at Toronto. Uh, and the only people that had picked it up at that point was were Circle Films. And then, then when it played at Toronto, and it had such a great reception at Toronto, then everyone wanted it again. And Circle was like, yeah, you're not going to get it. And, 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 and then it went to Sundance. And then it went to Sundance, yeah. And then it gets, and like in 84, 85, it's on everyone's top 10 list, essentially. Except for is... Pauline Kael. <laughs> Pauline Kael called it ugly with crude themes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, of course it was. I mean, that's that's the that was the point. I can't, I feel like that every episode I have to bring up some kind of negative reaction to a Pauline Kale thing. I and I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, to go from this, which again has its fault, and I think, you know, even they would say that it it was not, you know, it's not it's not it's not the film that they're going to you know, they're going to put on their calling card. But to go to this to making one of the quintessential comedies of the of the, our generation, and quite possibly one of the funniest movies of all time, is it's such and so like okay so here's one of the things that struck me last night about the screening was that when I asked prior to the screening how many first timers, a majority of them were first timers. I was going to ask the question like, do you think that Coen Brothers is greatest hits? kind of directorial like I don't know if there's people that go back and I think people like Lebowski I think people like Raising Arizona I don't I, I bet if we pulled most of the crew most of them hadn't seen and I'm not even talking about the deep cuts like a simple man or the man who wasn't there but like 
Blood Simple should be one that people have seen if you are a Coen Brothers fan. I mean, I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to denigrate moviegoers or movie lovers. That's fine. But it's an interesting thing to me that when you talk about, like, Scorsese or, mm-hmm. you know, even, like, more populist filmmakers like, like Raimi, for example, there's going to be people that, oh, yeah, I've seen all the Evil Deads. And I've seen – I went back and looked at – they probably won't have seen Crime Wave because it's fucking hard to find. But I mean, outside of that, and it's pretty well derided, right? Yeah, it's a piece of shit. But I mean, like it's. <laughs> right, right. But to that end, like it's, it was really, really surprising to me that people hadn't seen this, and it's just like you like all these, and, and again, maybe it's because their films are so different. I mean, look, there's. Do you there's, think? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, no, where do fine. you think people's entry point is with the Coen's? Like, but do you think it's like Lebowski, and then far, they kind of go, okay. I think okay. Fargo is the one that probably okay. pulls people in. I think Lebowski is hard for people. I don't think Lebowski. I mean, like, I think it's it's a cultural zeitgeist. Well, I think because, but what that's what I mean. Because it's become this kind of you but know quotable. Came, like came out, people came hated out, it. it. Yeah, right. I hated it. I I, I I did not like it when I first saw it. I, I mean, I thought it was just like, well, I was. I was drunk I all say, the time when it say, came out. I wouldn't out, say so. hated it, but I was like, I mean, obviously coming off of Fargo and coming off of their, you know, their Oscar award winning film, I think people were disappointed with this thing that was different. I, I don't know where, I mean, like nowadays, I'm not sure where the entry point is. Okay. I definitely think it's probably Lebowski because it's so talked about. That's and then, what, uh, Lebowski and Fargo, I would say, was where they where okay. their sweet spot okay. is. Okay. That, I mean, so I just wonder like then if there's sort of a barrier to going back because of that. Possibly. I, and, they, possibly. And, and then, but people are going forward and says, and, and so they start with Lebowski, oh, oh, brother, where art thou? Which right. I feel like is a more accessible kind of film as well. And, right. And I would, know. you know, not all of their filmography is, is accessible. I mean, obviously, Barton Fink's not exactly the easiest film to get right. into. Right. Um, you know, so it's a simple man is not, you know, it's, it's a weird film too. And then you've got uh, the weird, like, you've got the one offs that are just, you know, not good, like Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. But you also have very popular films like Burn After Reading. I mean, like, you can just go down the list. And, and even the ones that aren't very good are at least still interesting. I mean, Lady Killers is pretty bad. But, like, it's... but you know, Tom Hanks doing, like, Peter Sellers kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's just... And just kind of adding a, you know, adding a vulgar, you know, spin to an Alec Guinness movie they, they, where it didn't need it. I mean, like, it, it was a weird thing for them to do a remake like that when they could have just done and something. That's a, and that's just a weird choice to remake. Right. Yeah, it so, really is. Yeah. It, yeah, it, like I said, it was just... It was like... Because you always typically go back to the beginning right you find something that you like and you go back and figure out you know where they where they came from it just it just seemed blood simple to me it's got a criterion release it just it's not it's not hard to find and it's not really it's pretty easy it's a pretty easy watch is it just seems like it was just it was it it took me by surprise yeah i mean it's it's an hour 40 it's not even that long i mean it's not it's not that it's under two hours and i think it goes by pretty quick actually i mean i think it's a pretty lean movie yeah no there's fat on it no no Um, no not at all so i mean you could argue you could have trimmed up a few places and made it a a quick 90 sure but 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 you would have wanted it to make it you would have wanted to flesh it out at that time anyway just so it got you know it wasn't looking like an evil dead 81 right you know i'm saying i mean right to that end it's really interesting to me too that where the Coens had so much success immediately after this film and where Saint Raimi kind of languished a bit. Look, his films were still like he, he had Crime Wave and that was like a killer for him. And then he goes back to the well and basically remakes Evil Dead right. with Evil Dead 2. And then you know, with so a little that, bit more money, a little bit more 
humor. Right, right. But I mean, basically makes his first film over again. Yeah. It's, um, and, and, and really, you know, Raimi kind of owes a lot to King. I mean, like Stephen King, if Stephen King doesn't say what he says about it's the most scariest, scariest film, right. you know, I'm not sure that his cult status is, is I'm not sure where he is at this point. Because what did Raimi do after, did he do Army? No, he, he came back to do Army of Darkness. What? I can't remember what was in between Evil Dead and, was it Dark Man? Was it Dark Man? I'm not sure. Evil Dead, Crime Wave, Evil Dead 2, Dark Man, and then Army of Darkness, Quicken the dead. So by the time he's, yeah. By the time he does Simple Plan, he's like, basically the the studio is like, here, don't move the camera. Right, right. right. Here's a simple plan. Don't move the camera. Stop it. Because Quicken the Dead was fun, but it did not make it. But it also, it was Gene Hackman, Sharon Stone, and early Leonardo DiCaprio, but it did not make any money. No, no. And I don't think a lot of people liked it. Probably not. I, I kind of don't. No, I, there's, I there's do There's some too. cool scenes, and like, there's a cool like visual of like showing somebody through a bullet hole. Russell Crowe, too. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I forgot. Yeah, Russell early Crow Russell Crowe. Crow. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was an interesting. Like, this was ninety five. Well, it was a great movie, but it was no, no, no. But it was enjoyable. But, right. but right, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it was great, but I, I enjoyed it. I dug it. I, I mean, <laughs> Sharon Stone was, was hot at the time. I don't mean that in the derogatory sense. No, no, she was right. popular at the time. Russell DiCaprio's coming up. Hackman is Hackman, and then you have. This this newcomer Russell Crowe who who who's really interesting. I, I just think it's a sort of a different take on on this kind of western, on this kind of sadistic sort it's of a western. Rain, it's a Raimi take on westerns, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it, it's a fantastical take on 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 this genre. Yeah. That and, and, it was and it's ninety five, like and I'm a senior in high school, so it's got guns and boobs. I'm cool. Yeah, let's do it. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Talk a little bit about uh, the Fort Worth inspiration. Yeah, go yeah, go for it. One of the inspirations, and it was you know was the the Coens, and the reason it's kind of set in Texas is that the Coens had read about this Fort Worth case of attempt. Well, no, Fort Worth case of murder, and it was a pretty high profile trial. At the time when the man went on trial, uh, he was the wealthiest man in America to have been put on trial for murder. It's very much like Devil's Advocate, kind of. Um, you know, that, have you ever seen Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves? Yeah. The, tr- the trial in Devil's oh, right. Advocate oh, right. is very much right, like right, that. Right. Okay. <laughs> all, like I can, movie, all I can think of is like, look, but don't touch. <laughs> so, touch, but don't taste. He's an absentee landlord. Yeah. <laughs> Taste, but don't swap. <laughs> so, <clears throat> back in 1960s Fort Worth, there was a an oil baron family that's called the Davises, and the the patriarch of that family was a man whose nickname was Stinky Stinky Davis, who had three sons. I think T. Colin Davis was the middle son, but I, it doesn't really matter. T. Colin was this socialite, obviously rich kid in Fort Worth. Um, and uh, he was, at the time that this all happened, he was married and to another woman. And he and he f- goes to this country club, the Ridgely Country Club, if you're familiar with Fort Worth. He goes to the Ridgely Country Club. He's paying doubles with this couple. And the wife of the other person he's playing doubles with is a woman named Priscilla. Flamboyant, exciting. So both of these people that are playing, they both get divorced. They get, they get caught up in these big, pro, high profile divorce cases. And eventually what happens is they, you know, they, they break up. Priscilla, throughout the course of this, because she was with T. Cullen, she ends up losing custody of her kids. But so they get together. Now, Stinky didn't like Priscilla. 
And so because she was kind of ostentatious and she came from poor upbringing and, and she wasn't, you know, of the cloth that the, the Davises should be a part of. So Cullen and Priscilla are dating mere hours after Stinky passes away and T. Cullen inherits $100 million, which in today's money is $480 million. Hours after he passes away, T. Cullen and Priscilla get married. Once T. Cullen gets all of this money, he goes off on a spending spree buying art. He builds this huge mansion called the Stonegate Mansion. It's now used as like an event center in Fort Worth, but it's like this huge, huge, uh, looked like a municipal building. The the master bedroom was 2,000 square feet kind of thing. And he's filling this with all kinds of art and, and just decadence, right? He's in Fort Worth Trump at this point. This world is not fair. <laughs> it's really, really not. And so... Priscilla is living this life up and she gets involved. And so basically like he's kind of a, like T. Cullen is seen as like a, a, like before this was seen as kind of a spendthrift. He was, he would charge his buddies 25 cents to ride in his car when they were at Texas A&M kind of thing. But once this all happens now that he's married to Priscilla in the Stonegate mansion, they, uh, they're just having drug fueled Coke filled orgies all the time. And of course these things don't last. So five years later they start to get, they, you know, and Cullen is a Royal piece of shit. He's abusive. <laughs> There's I, you can go off and read it. So I, I don't want to give all the horrific details of it, but he's extremely abusive to her. And, and I'm, I don't want to go into it, but there's an incident with the cat of one of the, one of his stepdaughters. So this, as these things, these high profile, wealthy marriages that are based on Coke and sex end up doing, they, they end up splitting up and also because of the abuse. And so th- they, they break up and the judge basically orders T. Cullen out of Stonegate Mansion. And so he leaves Stonegate Mansion. He has to pay his wife alimony. Um, she moves in with a boyfriend. And so this is where all this cart's coming from, right? She moves in with a boyfriend who's a 6'10", former TCU basketball player, just a big stud of a guy who's... And, T. Cullen has all of these financial problems at this point. He's got he's got still got money, but because it's all of his money's tied up in in divorce settlements, um, he can't do business deals. He, him and his brothers can't do business deals without the court's permission. It's all this you know crap. On the day that the the judge increases Priscilla's alimony for the third time, someone breaks into Stonegate Mansion and kills her you know her daughter which is t cullen's stepdaughter shoots her boyfriend and eventually kills him and tries to kill priscilla now she's able to get away and run out and she meets two friends well she's able to get away to a neighboring house on the way up as she's being chased two of her friends who come up and see t cullen he's dressed all in black has a black woman's wig on um but they clearly identify him as as the shooter so he's arrested hours later so the trial starts he hires three lawyers um one of them who had um had, had uh represented a woman in or represented a man a, a famous plastic surgeon in houston who had denied his wife medical treatment and she ended up dying one of them who had um defended kirby and then this guy named richard racehorse haynes so the first trial the first trial in fort worth gets <laughs> that this, guy's a mob lawyer oh i mean come on yeah i mean he, yeah. he goes by the name racehorse right so the first trial in fort worth gets to go to a mistrial so they get the they get the trial moved to amarillo and at that point it's a 13-week murder trial and priscilla for some reason who's known in these circles in fort worth as you know, she she runs with drug dealers and she's a party. She shows up in this little house in a prairie dress with a full on cross and a Bible in her hand. 
and Racehorse has a field day. Now, to T. Cullen's credit, does he I lap guess, the field? <laughs> he, he, he absolutely does. So uh, there was no physical evidence of the murders. Like so, no weapon was found. Cullen's fingerprints aren't anywhere. They just have the three eyewitnesses. And essentially what happens is, is that racehorse eviscerates Priscilla. Now Priscilla plays the cards wrong and she comes in in a little house in a prairie. He basically paints her up as a coke field whore and that who conspired with her two friends because she wanted Cullen out of the way to have all of his money. And so for 13 weeks and, and basically people said as soon as he was done cross-examining Priscilla, the trial was over. But he says in his memoirs, like or in one of the it's like a Texas Monthly article, he says, I I kept the trial going for as long as I could so I could make sure that every single juror had reasonable doubt. By the time the trial's over and T. Cullen is acquitted of all of this, like he's seen as a Fort Worth hero. Like and Priscilla's just like, like when they talk about her, it's, it's just these snide remarks and it's, it's crazy. So flash forward two years later, and I haven't read all about this trial, but like T. Cullen is arrested again for conspiracy to commit murder because the FBI has him on tape hiring a person to to kill the judge that's overseeing his divorce trial, <laughs> as well as Priscilla. Basically on tape, uh, the, they have him on tape is saying but to the person he's hired to kill these people. It's like, you want to you want to He's like, I killed that judge for you. T. Cullen says, good. He's like, there's pe- other people you want. You want a lot of people killed. Right. And he's like, yeah. And but that wasn't enough to they were. So Racehorse comes back in again and says, hey, yeah, we say shit all the time, man. I say stuff. You say, yeah, I'm glad that guy's dead. Of course, he's going to be glad he's dead. Uh, Yeah. And of course, he wanted all these people dead. That is that's not proof. That's not proof. See how this ties back into tar. (laughs) Absolutely. So this so that ended up in a mistrial, a hung jury. They couldn't convict him when they arrested him the first time for murder they asked him why he did it and he said sometimes a man don't need no reasons they were able to throw that confession out because he hadn't been mirandized yet so this this is why all this shit matters and so years later priscilla dies of breast cancer in 2001 going to her grave still and obviously this guy did this t cullen would end up being a reformed you know born again christian End up, de- end up losing all of his money in the 1980s oil recession, mm-hmm. declared bankruptcy. Um, he still lives in Fort Worth today. So, hey, T. Cullen, if you're out there and you want to come defend yourself on Riders of Wilhelm Scream, <laughs> please do. We're over here every Thursday. Um, and, you, and, you, can, and, you can find Brock, Brock Kingsley at why Brock sometimes gets sad.com. <laughs> that is a – he it can is, come on and give us this sort of like OJ bullshit. I mean, and we'll call it we'll – How it the, I did it if I was we'll going to do the, it. If I did it episode, <laughs> if I did it special episode, it, that's bonkers. It's so that 80s bonkers. Texas. I, there's a criminal. There's a weirdly a criminal minds wiki page that like lists out real trials. So, so what I'm thinking, <laughs> when I'm sitting there reading about this, and like I was doing the intro for the movie last night, and I'm talking to Cat, my wife, and Cat about this, and I'm like. Like they they've made this into like a TV movie and like a couple of like TV shows have referenced it. They've written a book, but I'm like, how is this not a like how is this trial not a, like made into a full blown movie? Like it just like how have they not done this in a like it's it's so crazy. And I've lived I've lived here for ten years now. This is the first time I've heard of. I've never heard about this story, and it's 
fucking wild. But yeah, I, I'm just thinking that sounds like Texas. It sounds like Texas. Like, <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> it's Chinatown, Jake. Sorry, Priscilla. And, and there's some great, like, and T. Cullen was a, a pretty handsome guy when he was younger. Priscilla was gorgeous. Like, I mean, and like you see pictures of her, like, and in, in she's just decked out and like, like really like Club 54 kind of like, just like long dresses and just, I mean, beautiful. And it's like, what a fucking life that must be where you're just like living life to the like just to the ridiculous excesses right <laughs> just at, at like the the pedals all the way down all the time <laughs> like you're yeah you're you're you're, you're, you're dusting your cornflakes with cocaine kind of like lifestyle and yeah i mean i i mean not to not to not to be too like personal and sort of like pulling back the curtain on myself but i i i've had at points in my life in the past and thank goodness no longer where you know I have stayed up for three days straight with some help. It's terrible. It is terrible. It takes you like a month to recover. Like I can't imagine night just after being night. able to do that with no kind of worry about the next day, like night after night after. Yeah, night. that kind of because I still had to go to work. Kind of like yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now's the time, and then why does a woman scream when we do recommend it if you like? Like the thing that we talked about before, you might actually like these other things we're going to talk about now. Yeah. I was trying to come up with a theme song for this, but but it's not it's not doing it's not going well so far. I, uh, I'm wait, gonna okay. I'm gonna give it to you. You, you okay. start. All right, so I'm gonna go first, and I'm gonna look. I'm gonna do a cheat on this one. Sure. So I'm gonna give you two, and and the first one is. We're going to do three all together. You're going to give me four? Is that what you're yes. going to do? Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Yeah, because right. these two kind of... Well, there's one real recommendation. I have, a, like, I have a feeling that we might actually step on each other's Have some crossover here. here. Yeah. Okay, so here's the first one, and this is the real kind of recommended, if you like, and that is The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946, starring the aforementioned Lana Turner and John Garfield, a married woman and a drifter fall in love and then plot the murder of her husband. Uh, it's a quintessential film noir. Um, and I think you can see its influence kind of all over Blood Simple. I mean, yeah, I mean absolutely. very, From very a small town, like the, the, the diner slash bar setting. Older husband. A lot of car scenes and, yeah. and, and, and I mean, a, lot, the, a lot of misdirection too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Plot twists and stuff on top of a basic simple plot. Um, so this is based off of a James M. Kane novel right, that was then remade in the 80s with Jessica Lange and Jack Nicholson. Nicholson yeah. um, I studied with a short story writer named Lee K. Abbott at Ohio State, and he would always quote a line from this novel. So the novel is, is told in a first-person narration by Garfield's character, Frank Chambers. And, and <laughs> there's this line, Abbott would always quote this line when talking about how we how we show character right on the page and and chambers when he first sees the lana turner character says she looks so good it made me want to hit her with a hammer it's just it's it's a fucking brilliant line that just tells you everything right about this guy now it, maybe it's not the best line ever but yeah no it, it, and it's one that would be derided now i mean but but it, but it's so like, there's there's something to that where you see something so beautiful that you just can't stand it, and you you just kill have it. to smash it. Right. You just have to destroy it because it's too beautiful. It's too painful to look at. I can't. No, that, that's it. That's it. That's, and it also shows that this guy can be violent, and this is how he appreciates beauty, right? In a violent, destructive way. Right. And the, this the the scene when Turner is first 
you first see her with the in that lipstick? movie. Yeah, the lipstick falls on the floor, but but and you just you you pan up to her face, and she's shot in all this soft light. She's in total white. She's in this like kind of half shirt with just a little bit of and like legs that go on for days. Yeah, till Tuesday. <laughs> it, it is it is such an iconic shot and it's so so good and it's just meant so meant to be like you're in this you're you're obviously looking through frank's eyes right and seeing her for the first time it's really really good yeah so i think that you would all like that film okay so here's here's my here's my cheat and it's a woman a gun and a noodle shop which the, is the remake which is the like Chinese the direct remake. remake but set in i don't know if it's like the Qing dynasty but um you know some like, you know pre quote unquote modern like china so um but it really is a real close remake with some slapstick but it it, it it i don't think it's a great film but it's an interesting artifact to kind of put up against so yeah. that was that was my cheat i just wanted to um fair enough fair enough. um yeah i i the postman's on my list i've got four just in case we i knew we would do this so <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't um, think you'll have the other two so i don't think you'll have well maybe um yeah i, I know you won't have two of mine but uh it, and they'll all they'll actually now wow. you say this that was all be the same. i know right that that was pretty hipster of you like <laughs> Have you heard of this? Probably not. No, 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 no. It's something no, I'm, you kidding, I'm, heard kidding, of I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, go, go. <laughs> no, no, no. But going back to the postman over yeah, here twice. Yeah. It, I do think the po- I think Hugh Cronin's uh, character, and that's great, and that kind of speaks to like the 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 huckster lawyer. The scene where he's like yes. he like tricks Lana Turner into confessing the murder of her husband, and of course these both of these characters, in order to make them likable, they have these crises of conscience at right after right as they're trying to murder him and like bring him back. <laughs> and, like, and then live this miserable life together. His character is who Cronin's character, where he gets her to confess them, you know, that her portion in the murder, um, and to a fake, you know, to to a fake court person, and then or to a fake cop, and then so they, she she gets it out of her system, and then she he gets her off. And I, I I will say I think the postman always tries goes a little too long. I don't think it's a great film. I think it's good. And I really love it. Once it comes back around to the ultimate, like, fuck you of all the characters, right. it's a lot of fun. I, I think it needs a little bit of trimming, yeah. but, it's, have, but it's... Have you noticed that most of the film noir, the stuff that we associate with film noir, especially from the 40s and 50s, they're not really great? No. They're no, just they a lot just, of fun. They were just, yeah, just <laughs> pot just boiler like, films. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they all sort of followed a, a, the same kind of formula, but they were just a lot of fun. I mean, there were a handful, like, you know, Stranger on the Train, sure. Dignity, I mean, those that are really, truly, like, classics, yeah. right? Um, I think but, the big Sleep is one. I'm yeah. a huge fan of that. I have no idea what is actually going on in that movie, but it's one of my favorites. But all of these, like, I just, it, one, I'm a huge sucker for the rat-a-tat-tat dialogue. I'm yeah. a huge sucker for, like, just the, the double cross and the, it, yeah. yeah. And so there's, there's yes, there are there are some that stand out, but even, like, the, the chafe is still, like, really, yeah. like, really good. Yeah. But, and, and, and these are the kind of films that really got me into movies. I mean, because when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and I was reading, like, the Godfather novel. Right, right. right. And then I'm like, what's Turner classic movie? What's this? This is, in that, a black and white movies, oh, and of course that led me then to French New Wave stuff, because you see the influence of film noir on French New Wave, right? And then you see the German expressionist influence on film noir. And so, I mean, that's the stuff that led me into some of these other films. So when you watch The Godfather, you're just kind of wondering when they were going to show Sonny's dick like the entire time since you'd read the book. Oh, I just fast forward it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, they never showed it. But in Apollonia's breast, right? Because they, they write that. Yeah. The uh, Have you ever read Jaws? Peter Binchley's Jaws. Yeah. 
looked, obviously Spielberg flipped that and did, did. But I read that way, way too young. And I was, because like my parents were like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, good you're reading. It's, yeah, it's Jaws. Like, I've seen the movie. There's this whole subplot in the movie where Brody's wife sleeps with Richard Dreyfuss's character, and it's very, very explicit. <laughs> <laughs> he like goes to a diner and she talks about taking her underwear off in the bathroom and him like exploring her in the car like <laughs> on the way out. <laughs> but yeah, there's a whole subplot where where that that uh, Spielberg rightfully probably took out of the movie. Ellen Brody definitely um, not that was, kind of character in the in the film. No. So they did a little little night putting. Right. So my first <laughs> that's why I get kicked out. My first. Recommended if you like is John Dahl's The Last Seduction with Linda Fiorentino, Bill Pullman, and Peter Berg, who Peter Berg's now a director. But uh, it is about a Linda Fiorentino. This was when in the early to mid 90s when people were trying to make Linda Fiorentino thing. And that's not to denigrate. I think she's a great actress. I think she's a lot of fun. And she has that kind of like sexy but really soul pushing. But, but yeah, this was, and you'll find this in occasion. I meant to mention this when you talked about eight millimeter, uh, the other episodes, like Norman Reedus was a guy that they were really, oh, yeah. like he was on entertainment weekly is like the next one to, you know, to, yeah, to watch for. And then he doesn't do anything really until walking dead really breaks out. Right. But it, there was a time when that was, that was after boondock saints. It would have been it, before. It was before. Okay. Yeah, Cause boondock saints I, I forget. Um, but yeah, I mean, but he never had the huge mainstream breakout that that people thought he was going to have until he did, you know, and um, until he did Walking Dead. Linda Fiorentino was the same way she did, and then she ended up, you know, making Jade, and that that essentially was kind of a death knell for her career yeah. for everybody's Caruso's career as well. Uh, Linda Fiorentino is a um, is she's a New York telemarketer. She's hawking these uh, like what appears to be some sort of prescription drugs, and, and she's just a high pressure salesperson. She takes those drugs with. Have you ever seen Last Seduction? It's been been years. Yeah. Um, she she's married to Bill Pullman, who's kind of a volatile, um, you know, kind of con man. He they steal these drugs from this place that she's selling them. He goes off and makes this, they make this huge deal. And essentially when, um, they come back and they meet after the, after the drug deals over Pillman, Pullman gets the money, which he thinks that at that time that that happened, he's about to get murdered. It doesn't happen. And he comes back. He, for some reason he slaps Linda Fiorentino and she gets pissed and takes the money and run. And so during this whole entire time, she is, um, you know, she's changed her name. She's in a new town and she's worried that Bill Pullman and Bill Pullman, you know, is trying to basically find her to get his money back. And she's working the angles with J.T. Walsh. That's her lawyer. And how long do I have to keep this money and, you know, and, and where I can then declare it's actually mine. And so she's trying to figure out how she can divorce him and then still not have to give him back any of the money. And he's like, and, and so the, the, all these machinations, well, she meets up with a small town boob um, in Peterburg who wants to be a bigger guy than what he is in this in this little town. And he's and then she just starts to play him for a fiddle. And ultimately, Peter Berg, she gets Peter Berg to to kill Bill Pullman uh, or actually to she sets up Peter Berg for Bill Pullman's death where she murdered him, actually. And um, Peter Berg's left in a jail cell um, wondering what the hell happened. <laughs> he was just blindsided like, by view. This was a, like a series of films for John Dahl that 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 he wrote and directed. Uh, he would go on to make Red Rock West right after this with uh, um, 
uh, Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern. And Laura, no, no, um, who's the no, other that was, was like Laura Dern? Um, you know the one I'm talking about, the not Laura Dern. Um, yeah. she dated. Uh, she was in Men in Black too. She dated John, Jack Nicholson for a while. Laura Flynn Boyle. Laura. Um, <laughs> so the other Laura of the of the nineties. Well, what's the movie? I know, but but right, Dennis Hopper was in that. Was in yes, Red Rock yes, West. Yeah. Okay, what's the. And I, I, I know I'm kicking myself. What's the Lynch movie with Laura Dern and... Uh, Wild at Heart. Thank you. Wild and Nicolas Cage, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, and then Dahl would do these three movies and then really just go... And, like, he's had a prolific career in television, but, like, he was kind of what it seemed to be ready to be the, like, the next kind of, like, guy who was taking on this mantle of being the film noir kind of heavy thriller, especially when the 90s were coming out and those, those, a lot of those movies that were coming out. When he did Rounders. And he did rounders, yeah. And after that, that That's was basically the, it for him. Yeah. Which is weird because that was, I had to ima- imagine that was relatively successful. I have no idea what kind of money that movie made, but right. I mean, it was well received and it was, and it kind of start kicked off the whole Texas Hold'em f- craze. So, yeah. Okay. All right, what's your number three? Something Wild. Asshole. All right. All Something right. Wild. Uh, 1986, directed by Jonathan Demme, starring Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith plays a free spirited, free spirited woman who, quote unquote, kidnaps. Jeff Daniels for a weekend of adventure, but things get scary and dangerous when her ex-husband or ex-con husband shows up, played by Ray Liotta. A great role by yeah, Ray Liotta. Yeah, it's just it's it's a lot. It's just a fun movie. I mean, it's 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 great. Yeah, I no, love it. I don't know. I don't know what. No, Demi's always fun, especially yeah. like freewheeling Demi, like where funny Demi's. Yeah, it's always good. And that's I mean, it's just so. That shit, crazy. It's great. Yeah, it's great. I don't know. I don't. There's nothing else I really have to say about it except that it's wonderful. Yeah, no, go and watch it for sure. Have you ever seen Smile, um, the uh, Bruce Dern film? It's it's, a, it's the very first appearance of Melanie Griffith, and it's about this like small town, oh. a pageant, and she's like, and and yeah. she's is topless, which is very uncomfortable. Cause she's very very. Young. Well, I mean, she's one of these stars who, from a very young age, was like hypersexualized, right? And, yeah. And, um, you know her, and I mean even Jodie Foster, and I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but I yeah, have most of them. Yeah, most of them, right? Um, who was Who was Melanie Griffith married to for a long time? Uh, Don Johnson. That's right. And, and wasn't Wasn't she a minor when? Oh, that's right, yeah. Dakota oh, no, Johnson. Yes. That's what I was. Yes, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. She was a minor when they got together. Yeah, D- Don Johnson's got a history. Of but that too. hey, it was the '80s or whatever. It's fine. <laughs> it was fine. I'm kidding. It's not fine. Don't. Yeah. Okay, what's your second one? Uh, my second one is Diabolique, oh. the uh, Clouseau 1955. Okay, I was, was going to ask. Not, <laughs> not, not the fucking Chaz Palminteri remake <laughs> right. of Sharon Stone. Right. Uh, a, a great uh, French uh, noir thriller. Um, it is about a assholish headmaster at this uh, student uh, at this you know school for boys. Um, he is terrible to his students he's terrible to his wife he's terrible to his mistress his wife and his mistress conspired together to kill him by drowning him in a bathtub after they have um you know they basically they've sedated him and they're going to put him in a in a rundown pool on the school grounds and they are hoping that it looks like they're, they're trying to frame it as an accident but they so they push his body down to the bottom of the pool, expecting it to rise back up. It never rises back up. They freak out and run away. Uh, and then things start to go really awry for them. Uh, um, the man's suit uh, comes back from the dry cleaners with a key for the, from his hotel. Uh, there's a, 
a, uh, a detective that's involved that's kind of playing them for fiddles as well, but also kind of seems buffoonish. It's a, it's, it's just a great, like, oh, shit, what's, what am I really seeing? What's really true? It's so much fun. It's so good. It, it, it's got a kind of gaslight vibe, yeah. too, yeah. in that. Yeah. Cause, because, I mean, well... I don't think we should spoil that one. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, it's, 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 it's it really has a great. It has one of the great like reveal. Really good twists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's such a cool one. Okay, my third one is Gloria, John Cassavetes' yeah. 1980, oh, yeah, yeah, 1980 yeah. film, um, yeah. starring the the great Gina Rollins. Um, Not the Sharon Stone remake. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Not the Sharon Stone remake. Like how you looked at me like, wait. What's Gloria? another Sharon Stone remake? Yeah, that's, that's weird. I didn't think about that, that's but yeah. Right. I was like, I just said, I just shit it on John, uh, Chaz Palminteri for some yeah. reason. <laughs> well, Gloria is the neighbor of this family. She ends, So the father of this family is like an accountant for the mob and has said some things he shouldn't have said and he's written everything down and so the mob is going to kill him. Gloria comes over to the apartment to borrow some, to get some coffee, right? She forgot, she, she's out of coffee and they're like, hey, take our kids. The boy goes with her, the the kind of preteen daughter stays. So these this, this family gets murdered by the mob and Gloria becomes this reluctant caregiver, reluctant guardian of this, of this like, six seven year old boy yeah and it turns out gloria is a former mob mistress and knows the guys that are after this kid and she basically kicks ass and she she's another woman with a gun uh you know like abby in in blood simple kind of and and it's got this but she's so badass though. she is so badass she does not you know, she's not phased at all. Well, I mean, what phases her is that she has to take care of this kid. Right. right? And, and you know, by the end of it, she sort of comes to terms with that and, and is willing to sacrifice herself in a way to, to make sure this kid's okay. Um, and then plays, you know, her or his grandmother by the end of it. Right. And, you right. Know, which is something she also is like, I don't grandkids. She's like 50 at the time. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those New York movies because it's like taking place like in the Bronx, I think for the most part. And then they kind of go, you know, into Manhattan and stuff. But it's a real New York movie where shit just happens on the street and nobody, nobody seems to care. <laughs> I don't, do you think Cassavetes gets the respect he deserves? I love Cassavetes. Yeah, it's so good. I love Cassavetes. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I think I, with, within like film nerd and critic, so, I mean, like obviously in the film, like, you know, the art, the filmmakers that are around today, obviously will yeah, but use them as an influence. But I mean, in I just, popular culture, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Right. I really don't. I, I think it's interesting that one of the best Cassavetes movies was made by Elaine May. Yeah. I mean, I think Mikey and Nicky is, yeah, is like yeah, yeah. such a so Cassavetes good, yeah. movie. I mean, I know that he's, he's in it, but, right. um, but I mean, husbands is just, I, I mean, I think, yeah, I think he's fantastic and no, I don't think he gets nearly enough credit. And, and I think some of his acting roles were really interesting too. Oh, Rosemary's yeah. Baby and the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Um, uh, Elaine May. I know she had a reputation for being difficult, but, and of course that's what women didn't that have power exa- back right, then. Right. I really love her stuff. And it's so unfortunate that like Ishtar just completely killed her career. But again, well, that's Warren Beatty. That's what Warren Beatty does, <laughs> right, right? If he right. can't direct the film that he's not directing, <laughs> then right. he kind of torpedoes it. And, and, you know, I think, and Ishtar's had a weird, like, uh, re-imaging. Uh, I mean, not, uh, but it's and it's still not a good movie. I watched it. We we I screened it at the At Home Film Fest, and just of these movies that were kind of like notorious. We had a whole right. like series of notorious films. It's not good. It's but it's a lot more fun than people. I think people shut on it immediately when it came out because it it's had the a worst budget. movie ever. Well, it, had a, it went over budget and it just sounded stupid. Right. Um, 
it's not great. Hoffman's not really good, <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> but it's fun to see those guys. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's fun. Like by the time it ends up, I think it's not. It's not nearly. It's a definite like five and a half, six. It's not like it's anything terrible. Elaine May and, and Cassavetti should get more. I think credit than they do. So. Absolutely. All right. My last one is 1993's Dream Lover. I'm pretty sure you probably haven't heard of this. It was directed by directed and written by Nicholas Kazan, who was the son of Elliot Kazan. Um, this is a James Spader 1993 sex thriller kind of movie with uh, Machen Amick. And so oh. it is... It is hot. The, if you go and watch it, folks, watch the unrated version. There is a lot of like good, good stuff in there. Um, if you like sexy movies, but basically, James Spader plays this recently divorced guy who uh, meets this kind of whirlwind beauty and kind of comes in and takes over his life, and they end up getting married. Well, as soon as they start getting married, he starts to realize that all of her stories don't quite uh, add up, and and that where she's almost tempting him to find out things about her, where she may still be married. She may not come from the place where she said she came from. She may still be married to a, a, a hometown sweetheart. Um, she may be having an affair with one of his friends. The kids that they have together may not be his kids. And basically she sets him up and to essentially go crazy. And she eventually has him uh, committed to an insane asylum. It is a, as far as like the tawdry, like kind of movies of, of the 90s go, this is one of the better ones. It's It, it definitely keeps you guessing. There's some things that are kind of an annoying, um, uh, you know, annoying in it, like some just filmmaker choices. But like of the movies that, that like Spader's perfect for this role. He's so like that, that level of Spader where he has this air of like pretentiousness, but all, and, but, but also in like, like almost like a weird level of intelligence, but he can't like quite control it. It's so, I don't know. I, I really like that era of, I mean, obviously I know you could become a little much, but I like that era of Spader. He was, no, he was so good. And, and I mean, really attractive in a different way. He was pretty back right, then, I right. think. And, and fits well for those kind of erotic thrillers that, that we saw in a different way than like Michael Douglas who became like the smarmy star of erotic thrillers, right? Right, yeah. right. It, it has supporting cast of Larry Miller who is wonderful in everything that he does. Everything. Um, and it's so funny. And it, I mean, if you're not familiar with Larry Miller, he's a, he's kind of a stalwart of the Spinal Tap crew um, and all of those movies in Mighty Wind. And, and he's a that guy. I mean, people yeah, will see him yeah. go like, oh yeah, that guy, I know, I know that guy. He played the, that he, is he played the, name. the daughter's um, dad in 10 Things I Hate About You, which is probably one of his and he was he was in Nutty Professor. He was the foil for um, Eddie Murphy in Nutty Professor. Um, Kazan wouldn't ever direct anything else after after this. He would go off and he would still write movies. In fact, he wrote, wrote he wrote Reversal of Fortune in a movie that I really love called Fallen, which is a Denzel Washington film. Um, um, but yeah, he would never direct anything after this, and and he didn't direct. He directed one TV show before this. So, but yeah, a lot of fun, and again, a lot of like and a lot of sexy moments with Major Amick and James Spader, which. Which Hot. is why in 93 I was watching it a lot. Yes. On repeat. And pause. <laughs> um, right. Great. So, yeah, go check those films out if you like Blood Simple. I think these will give you something different to think about. And, yeah, and a there's, different kind of a relation and association to them. Yeah, and there's a ton. I mean, like, obviously there's a ton. But I think this will give you a good idea, especially if you go back to those earlier ones, you'll get to see a lot of the influences oh, of what yeah. they were doing. I don't really think oh, the Coens are too overly concerned about who they're influencing these days. I, but, I, but I do think that they are probably encyclopedic 
uh, oh. you know, auteurs. Yeah, I mean, so case. much is so much is homage. Right? Right. I mean, with their own, again, with their own spin and their own kind of representation. So coming up, we will have a Christmas show, maybe a Christmas grab bag kind of special episode, uh, looking at a variety of films, a variety of films from we're gonna Christmas watch, and Handcuffs. We're watching Christmas and Handcuffs, watching Falling for Christmas, we're watching Black Christmas, we're watching Die Hard, yes. and we're watching a French Christmas horror thriller called Deadly Games or Code Noel. There's a hunch, there's a bunch of different names for it. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. Um, so those, those five, are we going to watch um, the Flaming Lips one as well, or is that... Uh, that was more just for you. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, and I have that with me. I'll give that to you before we go. Um, I, that so, was so, more just so, for you. All right. So um, those look, five look, are the, the Christmas, Christmas from Mars, ha- Christmas on Mars has like marching vaginas. And it's just, look, it's brilliant and it's weird, but no. It's, so. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to, obviously, I, some of those you've probably seen, you've probably seen Die Hard. Um, Flying for Christmas is on Netflix. It's the new Lindsay Lohan. Go out and seek out. Hand, holiday and handcuffs so we can talk about that one uh there's a how did this get made about holiday and handcuffs um it stars mario lopez and melissa joan hart i actually screened it a couple of christmases ago on the Rios foundation as well so much fun um and then uh yeah code noel maybe different like that's on that's on shutter so if you wanted to watch okay. that one that one's on shutter um but yeah it's it's a lot of fun too yeah so go out and listen to the or watch those and then and then play along when we when we talk about them we will also be returning with a third installment of our Schrader series where we'll be looking at the screenplays that he wrote but did not direct so we'll be looking at taxi driver bringing out the dead so two scorsese films and then mosquito coast if you're good with yeah, that the absolutely. peter, the peter weir yeah peter yeah. weir film um on the paul thoreau novel I think about you what i be Let's not use that as the outro for the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to use it now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Wait, I thought you were going to use, I'm an absentee landlord. <laughs> That's not even a good Pacino. I don't even know he's going to try. And then he's not, he's not the absentee landlord. God is. God is the absentee landlord. If that's the message that we're giving away here today, tar blows and God is an absentee landlord. <laughs> also go back and listen to our episode on First Reform to, to hear how we feel about religion. Thank you for listening, everyone. Merry Christmas. Bye. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>